Hello and welcome to The Footprint 40, a podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name's Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry, in company with a special guest. For our latest podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Kate Nichols, OBE, the Chief Executive of UK Hospitality, the trade body for the hospitality industry. The Footprint 40 is kindly sponsored by Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners. David, hi. Uh, we're back after a little summer hiatus. Um, hopefully listeners have taken the opportunity to relax and recharge the batteries. Uh, I know I have briefly. Um, but as we head into the autumn, we can't disguise the fact that things are looking pretty bleak for the sector um, and frankly the country as well. Things are looking pretty bleak Nick but we've got the perfect guest to to talk about some of this in um, Kate Nichols who I mean it's great that we've got her on the podcast because she must be one of the busiest people or have been one of the busiest people in the country over the past couple of years um, given the, the the various crises thrown at the hospitality sector. So yeah, really looking forward to to chatting with Kate about all this and you know maybe we can even tease out some opportunities and optimism. You know, optimism is something that um the hospitality sector is renowned for. So yeah, really looking forward to it. Great. Well, let's hear what Kate had to say. Kate, welcome to the Footprint 40. We're delighted that you're able to join us. You've headed up UK hospitality for a little over four years now, I believe. Although I know before then you headed up the ALMR before its merger with BHA. Um, lots happened during that period. So how would you say the nature of your role has changed from 2018 when all things considered, you know, the sector was looking in pretty rude health, I'd say, to then the pandemic era and now the cost of living crisis where a lot of businesses are worried about their ability to survive the winter. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be able to join you and, and discuss the, the issues of the day with, with you. Um, you're right, uh, the role has changed quite considerably. 2018 was a year when we, we merged um, and was set out to communicate to, to, to politicians, to the media, to the general public about what the hospitality sector was, um, how big it was, how important it was economically and, and socially and culturally as well, um, to be able to explain why we should be listened to and, and why it was important that public policy took an interest in our sector and, and took account of our sector. Because prior to that, the government has sort of business groups that, that go in um, and it had a B7 really uh, that, that looked at you know, it's a big business, small business, retail, financial services, energy, manufacturing and hospitality, despite being the third largest employer and, and the fourth largest industrial sector in the UK, was missing from those discussions. And so that, that was the driving force behind the merger and that was the driving force behind what we did over the, the course of the first year. Stood us in very good stead then, of course, that when we, we slipped into the crisis in uh, 20, early 2020 as a result of COVID, that we had got a good backdrop against which to be to be going in and talking. But the, the role changed considerably to be much more of a front-facing, public-facing, campaigning figurehead to be the voice and face of the sector and those working in it. Whether they were members of the association or not didn't matter 
um, but also to give a voice to those 3.2 million people who work in the sector and the 1.5 million who work in the supply chain. Um, that was really the biggest difference that we had during COVID as we fought to make sure that we had a, a viable business coming out the other end, that the businesses were supported, that the people in the industry were supported. Um, and that's really continued since then. I mean, we haven't really had pause from coming out of COVID. I mean, that's the challenge with the current set of crises we've got with cost of living and the energy crises and the inflationary pressures that we're seeing. The industry has not yet come out of COVID as a crisis, hasn't recovered hasn't got back onto a stable footing before it's been hit by the by the next one. So I kind of talk about it as as the the ABC really because you you know you've had uh, Brexit, you've had COVID, you've had uh, the, the the supply chain challenges and pressures that you've got there, uh, and now we've got an economic crisis and an energy crisis, which which means the industry is is. Uh, fighting for its life once again. Yeah, and the en- energy crisis is, you know, it would it would make sense for us maybe to um, start this conversation by talking a little bit about how the energy crisis is affecting your members, Kate. I mean, I think Nick wrote this week about some of the energy bill increases businesses are seeing are up to sort of 300% and they're struggling to even get suppliers as well. Um, you know, can you can you give us an, an idea of the kind of messages you're getting from members and, uh, and how serious this crisis is for them? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's a, a rapidly uh, deteriorating situation for businesses. It's got worse on a daily basis. Um, we started to have it flagged up by members with us probably at the beginning of this year when contracts were starting to be renewed. People were talking about 50% increases in contracts. They were talking about challenges in getting supply where suppliers were seeing hospitality inherently as a risky proposition because of COVID um, and because of the two years of shutdown. Now, that's not unique to, to energy. We had other suppliers who were also taking a similar approach, uh, banks, insurance providers not wanting to supply or asking for larger deposits than they would have otherwise done or not quoting for new business. Um, but that has sort of snowballed, I would have said, out of all control um, over over the last few months. Um, by April with the war in Ukraine. So I think the important thing to note is the energy crisis was with us. The inflationary cost price situation was with us pre-Ukraine. Ukraine has just heaped misery upon on greater misery in terms of the business costs that are coming through and the impact on the global supply chain and global energy chain. So we were seeing 50% increases in bills in January. By April, that had gone to 100%. Um, businesses were reporting at the end of July 200, 250% increases. And then it's just gone out, out, out of all kilter over the course of the last month. And I think the, the, the impact on the industry and the reason it's come to the fore is that so many businesses are renewing contracts. Um, at the beginning of August uh, and beginning of September. And so it's really hitting home. We had uh, a small number of businesses that were alert to the possibility of change and the possibility of, of problems coming their way when, when it, uh, the, the, the energy contracts were renewed in the first half of this year. There's a lot more that are starting to be renewed August, September, October. And the scale of the problem, therefore, is that much more acute because now we're seeing three, four, five hundred percent increases in bills in some cases, depending on when people are contracting. Uh, the difficulty of getting longer term contracts, people regularly had, had done three year hedges. Now they're lucky if they can get a year. 
Um, people are being asked for large deposits up front in order to secure supplies. So that causes a further cash flow squeeze because it's based on the size of the bill. And therefore, you've got millions of pounds across the industry tied up unproductively at a time when businesses need access to cash um, in securing supply. And, and the message we're getting from, from businesses is that the scale of the increase means that the, the energy bill is now bigger than their rent, bigger than their profits. So it really is a tipping point that overnight you've got good, viable businesses that have just been made unprofitable and gone into loss simply on the basis of their energy bills and particularly their, their electricity bills. Um, so it really is quite acute. Um, you're probably looking at about half of the industry looking at renewing contracts at the worst possible time. Um, and also in hospitality, unlike other business sectors, there isn't anything you can do. You need your energy in order to be able to drive your business. Um, that's in the supply chain too, in the food supply chain. But it's not like a factory where you can close down for two weeks, save some energy, and you don't have energy costs while you're closed. You have energy costs even while you're closed as a hospitality business to just keep it ticking over. Um, so it, it really is a challenge that, that people are struggling to be able to know how to navigate. Now, the government obviously was forthcoming with support during the pandemic through the furlough scheme, uh, you know, temporary VAT reduction, eat out to help out, loans, etc. Um, do you feel that the government recognises the scale of this new phase of the crisis? Um, because we've heard not too much thus far about potential support for businesses, have we? No, you're right, we haven't. Um, and when government does talk about it, they talk about the, the help that has been given in the past to get firms through covid and as I say, we've got an overlapping set of crises. You know, one in three businesses in hospitality haven't got back to profitability because of the situation of COVID. One in three have no cash reserves because of the situation with COVID. So the help that was given, fantastic as it was, was enough to get them through the COVID crisis. If you now layer energy on top, it needs an additional set of responses. And as yet, as you rightly say, Nick, we haven't heard anything from government uh, about what it is going to do. And I think we are sleepwalking into disaster and catastrophe here because the scale of the problem isn't yet apparent to the to the um, to the to the ministers and to the officials. Um, we don't yet know what the response will be, and it's happening in, very close to the time that you will see new bills kicking in and new problems kicking in. A couple of things that that we've been at pains to be able to try and explain to to, to ministers, which I don't think they've quite grasped yet, is as I say that tipping point that businesses will become unviable because of energy. So through no fault of their own, they become unviable. And therefore, you make the economic crisis even worse because you've got a large number of unviable businesses that will go bust or will reduce hours. You've got lots in, in hospitality in coastal and rural areas that will say they'll close for the winter season. Um, that means that take-home pay for staff goes down. You'll also see job losses. And I think the scale of the, the crisis, unless we get some help and support, could be as big as the losses we saw during COVID, which was 10,000 businesses, 10% of the estate, um, and 660,000 job losses. So, you know, that cost of living, that economic crisis in a sector that the government was relying upon to get it out of the whole of COVID to recover quickly, one of the few sectors of the economy that was going to be forecast to grow, um, I just don't think they've grasped the reality of the situation and how quickly this will slip over the next six months from a, a sort of steady state to uh, a widespread closure and um, job losses uh, potentially overnight. So what action should the government 
be taking now in your view? I think really quickly they need to get a grip on this to understand and articulate quite clearly that you're not going to get a grip on the cost of living crisis unless you get a a grip on the cost of doing business crisis. So helping businesses with their energy bills now will mean that prices don't go up to consumers tomorrow or later in the year, because we are also seeing those businesses that survive are going to have no option but to pass those costs through. So that will further fuel the inflationary spiral. What we need government to do is is to get cash flow support to these businesses. So they need time to pay, reinstated. We need to go back to the COVID war footing. Time to pay for your VAT and HMRC needs to be told that for VAT and PAYE, these businesses will not be making payments in the the, the next couple of quarters because of the energy crisis. So we focus on that. Secondly, we need to reinstate the uh, trade credit insurance scheme so that businesses, again, are not having unproductive capital tied up in deposits and that uh, energy suppliers are told that they have to supply hospitality um, and use the trade credit scheme to, to, to get through that. Secondly, we need government to give a cash injection to businesses to help them navigate this unpredictability. It's quite clear from the announcements that have been made this week that the energy regulators can't regulate price. The global market is is, is broken and is all over the place. So we're not going to be able to, to stop those price increases going through. We need to help businesses manage it. So we need business rate relief and we need VAT cuts to be able to give businesses some breathing space to make sure that they retain to retain viability. And a VAT cut will also help to maintain discretionary spend as we go forwards. And then we need government to be able to take urgent action to to get cash support to those customers uh, across the board that need it the most, targeted at the most vulnerable, but to help all households so that we don't make an economic crisis worse by cutting discretionary spend off at the knees altogether. Okay, really interesting. Yeah, Nick and I were talking about this issue this week, Kate. And, you know, we were talking about the the short-term measures that are needed in order to, to help those business that are, businesses that are struggling, but also, you know, the, the more sort of medium-term measures um, in order that businesses and the country is better prepared. And, you know, that got us talking about things like energy efficiency and how um, businesses can invest in that. I mean, is the current situation, has that put um, issues like energy efficiency front and centre for businesses or is it just too overwhelming at the moment? I think in the early part of this year it did put energy efficiency back at the front and centre. People were looking at how they could do things better um, we had lots of queries about things like uh, you know, how could you move away from gas? Um, how could you look at induction hobs? What was working? Um, what, what, how could heat pumps work? particularly in, in the, 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 the current heat wave, how could heat pumps work to cool premises down and to make refrigeration more efficient? I think over the last six weeks, it's been quite clear that that's been totally overwhelmed by the scale of the crisis in energy bills. And to be honest, sustainability, first and foremost, is about businesses surviving. Um, you can't have sustainable businesses un- unless they're on a firm financial footing. Then they can look at other issues to make sure that their business is sustainable in the medium to long term. So I think it, it will come back to the fore because businesses will need to look at how to manage the, the energy bills that they've got. But the scale of the, the increase that they're seeing means that energy efficiency measures now are just going to be a drop in the ocean. And unfortunately, because of the cash flow issues that we've just talked about, they don't have the spare cash to be able to make that investment. They are hunkering down in every sense of the word, to be able to, to conserve cash to, to get them through this short-term crisis. I, I also think there is a danger that people do think it is a short-term issue and that bills will rapidly go back to normal 
This is something we're going to have to live with. And this is what the government needs to get their head around. This is with us for 12 to 18 months. I can't see any sign of wholesale prices going back down within that period. The last forecast I saw from Cornwall Insights was suggesting that the energy cap would remain above £3,000 um, until 2024. Now, that puts double pressure on those businesses because what's happening with the energy cap is a signal for what's going to happen with commercial bills. So your bills are going to remain high. But it also means that customers have got about £1,500 less disposable income over the course of a year to be able to spend in pubs, bars, restaurants, hotels. So I, I think there's a danger in thinking this is very short term. We need a plan for the next 18 months. Yeah, And of course, this energy spike has come at the same time as we have inflation across the economy, food and drink prices going up, labour, the cost of labour going up at the same time. Um, you know, it feels like we're almost in a vicious circle, if you like, with, you know, these short-term cost pressures are preventing businesses investing for the future. Um, is, is there, I mean, as the, as the body representing the sector, Kate, how can you balance the need to, to urge ambition around sustainability? Because clearly many members have made quite ambitious commitments, net zero commitments, for example. With the need to, you know, uh, focus on the immediate financial challenges facing businesses. Well, I think it's always about looking at the short, medium, and long term, and trying to have that three-point plan as a, as the sector as a whole to be able to get people through the current crisis. That's what we did all the way through COVID. The the asks, the measures that we were looking at, adjusted over the course of time, depending on what was being considered and depending on what state we were in in the crisis. And it's making sure that you've got that agility to, to be able to adjust those plans. So, you know, a, a, a larger part of what we will be doing um, with the government is to be able to look at that financial headroom for the longer term investment to make sure that we can get back to sustainable energy use, that we can get back to, to energy efficiency <clears throat> and that businesses are given the incentives to be able to make those investments. So as well as immediate business rate relief to be able to get people through the next six months when they're going to have the, the highest prices for energy bills, there is also measures that you can take in the business rates regime and the, the, the R&D um, tax credit scheme as well to be able to incentivize that investment longer term um, so that we, we don't lose sight of those longer term objectives to be able to get the sector through um, and to make the commitments from a business sense as well, it's about making sure that we're articulating to businesses why that longer term agenda of sustainability, carbon net zero matters and why they need to start the journey now in order to be able to save their businesses money. So actually, there's never a better time than at the height of a crisis to be talking about to businesses about how to save cash, conserve their reserves to be able to make investments that are smart. And I think, to be fair, a lot of the sector, particularly at the SME side, has been waiting to find out what are the smart investments to make. It's, it's a bit like, which, which do you go for, Betamax um, or, or VHS? Um, and they haven't yet known which way to plump. Um, this gives us an opportunity to be able to say, here is the measure you can take now that will reduce energy consumption. And these are the steps you can take in the future to get make sure that your bills are under control and, and you future-proof yourself against a further crisis like this. Yeah, I think the, 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 the small and even the medium-sized businesses are the ones that, you know, are often struggling to not only understand what net zero is, but what it means for them and what they do now, I think. And, it, you know, it, I, I suppose this makes your sustainability strategy, upcoming sustainability strategy, 
all the more timely, really, Kate. Absolutely. So we will be launching that new strategy at the, the beginning of September. Um, and that's trying to put things like carbon net zero and some of the other pledges that are around, because again, this is a very crowded space in terms of policy. Um, and, and it get, you get the, the latest fad that comes up. It was all about wrap and food waste. Then it became all about carbon net zero. It's about trying to put that in the context of overall sustainability for the business and the sector as a whole so that we look at sustainability in the round. That helps businesses to be able to understand how they can play their role in delivering that and what their place is. Because a bit like the energy bills, it can be so overwhelming that you can lose sight of of the sort of small things that you can do as your business. When you say carbon net zero, when you, you talk about um, being carbon neutral by 2030, 2040, and those targets for, for many small businesses, they do, just don't know where to start. Um, and, and so part of our role as the trade association, yes, it's the campaigning, yes, it's the promotion of the sector, it's the engagement with government, but it's also about practical advice and guidance on compliance. And it's about being that beacon and that and showing that leadership to, to, to be able to set out best practice so that everybody can get on board because the best way to eat an elephant is in bite-sized trunks. Um, and the thing that makes hospitality challenging, thousands of SMEs, many of them, uh, you know, family-run businesses um, that don't have the scale to be able to enact change themselves also can be a virtue because if all of those make very small changes to their business practice, it adds up to a very big change for the sector as a whole in delivering carbon net zero. And one of my favorite phrases is a rising tide lifts all boats. If we all make a small amount of change across hospitality and we show how you can do that and some of the very simple and easy tricks and tips, you know, one of my favorite ones is is cutting out garnishes from cocktails um, you know, particularly passion fruits. Um, lots of people can get on board with that. They might find it much more difficult, particularly given the current crisis where they're thinking about how they can stay afloat and whether their business will survive. It's more difficult for them to look at heat pumps and investment in energy. But if we can talk about sustainability in the round, that helps. So that's what our strategy is aiming to do. It's looking at sustainability. It's putting all of the current challenges that we face as a sector, whether it's energy, food costs, food inflation, um, food supply at its very basic level was what we were challenged with at the beginning of, of the year and, and um, as we reopened from COVID. And staffing, you know, staff is a key component in, in being sustainable as a business. We can put all of those things within the, the, the umbrella or underneath the umbrella of sustainability, make it relevant to all of the businesses so everybody engages and set out some simple steps that can be taken to improve sustainability and crucially link it to the bottom line, that's that's what we're aiming to do. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think particularly with small businesses, it's not necessarily always helpful talking about abstract terms like net zero rather than focusing on practical mm. advice for both how you can you know do better for the environment and also your own cost base i think food waste is a great example where you know if you can use all the food coming into your kitchen and reduce you know not only plate waste but also your kitchen waste as much as possible it's just a win win right there's no there's absolutely no reason not to do it or try not to do it um, and i think we we can talk in these practical terms rather than necessarily um, talk too much about abstract, more abstract concepts that can only be helpful. I think that's right. And I think, you know, th that's where never let a crisis go to waste. Um, <laughs> that's, that's where we have a different opening point with these businesses 
previously in the good times, you are always coming at it from an abstract. You're talking about doing good for the sake of doing good. Why is carbon net zero the right thing to be getting on board with? Now you're coming at it from saying, would you like to improve your margin? How can we reduce your costs? How can you make your business future proof? And this is the way to do it, which will also deliver societal, environmental and other goods. That That is an easier conversation to be opening. I'm keen, Kate, to touch on regulation because we've, I guess we've got, you know, if you look at sustainability in the round, you've got the steps that businesses themselves can take to, um, to become more sustainable, whether that's reducing food waste or changing the balance of their menus. But you've also got government um, setting out a framework for sustainability through new um, laws such as or regulations, for example, plastics tax, extended producer responsibility. Um, and I wonder whether you feel the government has struck the right balance between regulating to achieve its environmental goals and leaving it to businesses or the markets to sort of, you know, uh, do the right thing and, and lead that shift in the right direction. Um I don't think they've got the balance right. I didn't think they had the balance right pre uh, the crises that we've had. But I do think we need to have a complete reset and a rethink now that we're into this uh, sort of economic crisis on top of the COVID crisis. Because you've got regulation that was first drawn up 2017, 2016 even in some cases, looking at additional taxes, additional costs on business, putting the, the burden on business to be able to deliver things when business is now crippled with those extra costs and, and is unable to be able to, to consider how they can do it. We've been pushing for a rethink on, on a lot of these areas around green taxes um, over the last year to be able to say to government, look, we understand the, the, the direction of travel. We want to support you. We want to get on board we will do it. Look at what we've done with carbon net zero as an, as an example and, and food waste where, and, and actually plastics. If you look at straws and spoons and, and the measures that, that the industry took, industry will get on board with the direction of travel, but now is not the time to be loading those businesses with extra costs and extra regulation. I can understand it if you've got businesses that are, are not um, getting on board with, with the proposals or not doing the right thing. Um, and I can understand why you might look at regulation to be able to incentivize businesses to do the right thing at a time when the economic climate is benign. But when we're staring into recession and we're staring into business failures, now is exactly the wrong time to be pushing ahead with uh, plastics tax when we have no recyclable alternatives to food wraps, for example, and, and cling film. So you have no option but to pay that tax. Deposit return schemes, again, understand the, the rationale behind it, but now's not the time to tax businesses who will only have to pass that on to consumers. So you make inflation worse for longer. So we need to rethink on all of those measures so that we can get back into a balanced frame. Do you think, Kate, that, um, I mean, some of those regulations that, that are coming through, mandatory food waste reporting, for instance, arguably, uh, as Nick was alluding to earlier, you know, it's a no. It's a win-win. Um, reducing food waste, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you know if you start measuring and reporting on food waste, you reduce food waste. And there's also evidence that the voluntary schemes to date just haven't worked. Um, not enough, in particular, businesses from the hospitality sector have joined up to the schemes. So you can kind of see why. Are there certain areas of regulation that you'd? maybe like to see push ahead and it seems certainly those that you'd like to see 
um, maybe not push so much uh, 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 around packaging and extended producer responsibility? It's, it's very easy to think that, that, that schemes or regulation that looks at reporting or, or measuring something don't have an impact on business. They do. They have significant costs on business at a time when businesses can't afford it. Um, and I think you need to have a complete pause on all of those kind of new regulations at the moment because businesses are in such a fragile state. As I say, you've got energy bills that are coming through that are wiping out profits and profit margins for even the largest companies in the sector. And, and companies just can't sustain those losses. Also, it, it, it is, it's discretionary nice to do reporting mechanisms um, that, that require an additional headcount often. They can't always be done within the existing business framework. And at a time when businesses are prioritizing costs, and as we said earlier, hunkering down for survivability, again, now is not the time to be layering additional costs on top of them, because all that will do is make the product more expensive to consumers, both in hospitality and in retail. Um, and we don't want to be increasing prices to consumers at this point in time. So I would argue for a complete pause and a moratorium on new regulations coming through, which have a cost to business for two years. That's not the same as saying no action needs to be taken. You can see very clearly with the, the court old the uh, commitments, the RAP commitments, if you look at the healthy eating space, when we looked at the responsibility deal, an awful lot of good practice was done and put in place on a voluntary basis. And a lot of the sector did move. The fact that you're not signed up to a commitment does not mean that you're not tackling food waste. Um, and, and therefore, I think we should be cautious about assuming that the sector is, is performing badly and that more could not be done on a voluntary basis um, by com communicating good practice that is out there and targeting it around the areas where people could save money for their business at the same time. So I, I just think if you regulate, you can be a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And there is no way in which regulation is cost neutral. At the very least, a business needs to have somebody employed to be able to work out what the regulation means, to translate it through to business practice and to make sure they are complying. So even basic regulation has a cost to business and now is not the time to be imposing costs on business. Yes, and I think it's worth making the point that a lot of voluntary commitments and government proposals around food tend to be conceived with the retail sector in in mind um and and retailers tend to you know that do tend to lead the charge on these things but because it's a much more um much much less fragmented sector and you have a dozen you know large players who um account for the vast majority of the market and perhaps the challenges are very different in food service aren't they in hospitality um often don't have that cent central data and um you know uh, central functions where you can just you know, look at an EPOS system and pull out all the data off of it. Yeah, I think that it, that is right, um, both in terms of the ability for those uh, retailers as, as sort of end user customers to influence what the market delivers. You know, the retailers can equally turn around to their suppliers and demand certain information, demand they produce things in a certain way, demand that they change the packaging. You don't have that market power um, at a hospitality level. And the second point is you have a very much more, not just a fragmented end point of hospitality, you have a very fragmented food supply chain. Um, there will be many multiple links in the supply chain, even to the largest companies, and you'll be using lots of different suppliers, both of which means that that, that, are, that is much more challenging. But I sit in regular meetings um, where we've got farmers, food manufacturers, retailers, and hospitality food service 
all together talking to government, if even the retailers are saying this is not the time to be imposing additional costs and we can't manage the complexity of regulation around extended producer responsibility, deposit return schemes, plastic taxes, if even they are saying now is not the right time, the government surely needs to listen when you're talking about a sector that is much more fragmented and made up of much more SMEs who are more vulnerable and a sector which is more vulnerable due to COVID because it hasn't yet recovered. Just to pick up, just finally on a point there, Kate, is, you know, what do, what does the public think about all this? Obviously, the public's very aware of the the hospitality sector, the crisis that it's been through, through COVID, and now through energy prices as well. Is, is there a risk, though, in pushing back on some of this green regulation and ambition that the hospitality sector and businesses in in the sector are seen as sort of anti-green and pushing back against, you know, things that will help get us to net zero and tackle climate change and water. I was reading a recent YouGov um, survey that showed that um, sort of concern over climate, climate change had spiked on the back of the droughts this summer, for instance. I mean, where, again, I suppose it comes back to where we started this conversation around balance between, you know, the sustainability of businesses surviving and their future sustainability in order to protect the planet. I think I would draw a clear distinction between pushing back on the costs of regulation at this point in time and the ambition. And I don't think anybody in the sector is pushing back against the uh, ambition, nor are they pushing back against the objective of, of where we need to get to. It's uh, it's the how do we do it and how do we achieve it in what time frame and at what cost, where I think there is quite a lot of alignment with the, the vast majority of the general public who are concerned about the cost of, of products, the cost of living, who are concerned about price increases that are going through, and also who are concerned about the loss of venues in their high street. You know, that, that is the acute issue. So I think it is, is back to that balance that we talked about in terms of what does the term sustainability mean, sustainable business, is about business viability and is about business future, as not just about the green agenda. Um, and, and you have seen equally polls of consumers that show that while the climate crisis remains front of mind and they want people to do it, it's overtaken now by by costs um, and the cost of products and, and needing to look at that. So I think it's about making sure you've got a balanced message and a clear message from hospitality that we are not just saying no and we're not just pushing back against regulation for the sake of it. We're making a very clear distinction about the how and the why and the when you introduce a stick to business to make them do something when arguably they are already doing it and already taking action, largely driven by, by the crisis that they're facing in, in their business and in the economy to be able to make their businesses more sustainable in the round. Um, and it's about making sure that we are capturing everything that is being done by the sector as a whole and that we as the trade body are able to articulate that to be, to be able to put forward our best message. Because let's not forget, you know, we are looking at also a, a labour crisis in the sector. People are our biggest commodity. We need to make sure that we are shown to be a responsible employer and that we look after the employer brand um, in order to attract people into the industry. And carbon net zero, climate, uh, environment, sustainability in the broadest sense 
is a key issue of concern to many who are looking to join the sector, particularly those younger employees um, for whom this is a, a bigger concern at the moment. Well, you've linked seamlessly, Kate, to, to the final subject we'd like to touch on with you, which is labour and skills as well. I mean, we've already touched on the shortages across the entire food supply chain, not just in hospitality, but at the farm level and manufacturing. So, I mean, how keenly are businesses feeling these labour shortages? And do you feel there's both things that we can do in the short term to ease them, but also do we need a long-term strategy for labour and for skills in the hospitality sector? Yeah, I mean, this was the top issue of of concern that businesses were raising with us back in in sort of April uh, to to July uh, until energy overtook it as the number one issue that that members are contacting us about. We have a 10% labour shortage, vacancy rate with across the sector, I think across the whole of the food supply chain, it's at 8%. So you're right, it's not just a hospitality issue. It is across the food supply chain. And it is an economy-wide issue. You know, over the course of the last six months, the ONS figures every month have shown that there are more vacancies in the economy as a whole than there are people who are claiming unemployment benefits. So clearly, we have an economy-wide situation where there are insufficient people in the labour market available to the labour market to fill all those gaps. Um, so this is not just about is hospitality a good or a bad employer? Is it a good or a bad career choice? Although that undoubtedly comes into it when you look at what's happened over the last two years in terms of crisis. This is an economy wide issue. So we, it's clear we can't solve it on our own. So your, your, the, the answer to your initial question, Nick, is yes, we do need a, a sort of short, medium and long term solution to address this. Um, and we need a bridge to get us to that long term solution because that, that isn't just a hospitality issue. The first point is that you you can't close down an entire industry for almost two years and expect the training and the recruitment to be bounced back as quickly as it can. We've got a two-year hiatus in our talent pipeline, whatever we do, because at the same time as closing down the sector, you close down catering colleges, you close down our apprenticeships. So our pipeline of chefs and skilled employees who are coming through that vocational training route is hit. Um, and, and there's a two year delay on it, which also coincides with the tightest period of time demographically for young people coming into the labour market. So we have a demographic time bomb coinciding with a, a two year hiatus in our talent pipeline. So the long term solution is around skills, training, recruitment, making sure that the uh, qualifications are right at a, a GCSE level, a T level an apprenticeship and catering college level to get those people moving through and into hospitality and to get them to see hospitality front and back of house as a career of choice. And then you need a a sort of short, immediate and and medium term strategy to to bridge that two year gap. Um, And some of that will be within the industry's own gift. So we're launching Hospitality Rising, which is uh, the, the, the largest and, and first national advertising recruitment campaign to get young people who are, are leaving school, college and education this autumn to think about hospitality as an entry level career job. Uh, and it is focused on that entry level in the, sh- in the short term to be able to get more people into the industry quick- quickly. Um, and, and then we're also looking at overhauling the the qualifications regime to be able to get entry-level qualifications at a standard that is comparable across the country as a whole. But that will take time. And so the part of the bridge will be to look at access to labour and a labour market strategy from government centrally to make sure that the economy has access to the labour it needs to fill all those gaps. Because currently, 1.3 million vacancies across the economy, um, and that's been consistent for six months. 
one thing that always frustrates me about hospitality is how it's how it sort of is put in this box called unskilled labor um which i find it hugely frustrating i mean one of the hardest jobs i've ever done was waitering in a branch of carluccio's which requires huge not you know not, not just physical dexterity but mental agility at the same time and i think it's i mean do you do you see any sign within government of that not just within government, but society more broadly, that perception shifting and it hospitality being recognised as a sector where actually you need to apply a lot of skills. I think we are starting to see that coming through. There is a sort of broader understanding. Uh, I don't think any job is unskilled in hospitality. I don't think any job is unskilled anyway. Uh, but but in hospitality, it, it's certainly not true to say that there are unskilled jobs Every job that we have requires a degree of training and requires a degree of investment to make sure that people can function. And I think that's something that is um, undervalued by government as a whole. The investment we make in taking somebody who is entry level, that's different to unskilled, entry level roles and rapidly upskilling them over the course of three to six months to get them to be properly qualified in various areas. And the other area that, that doesn't get enough recognition is the soft skills. You know, we've got a, a generation of young people who've had two years worth of disrupted education. We shouldn't undervalue the, the amount of, um, contribution we can make in, in giving them those soft skills in customer service, people engagement. Uh, managing teams, being involved in teams, uh, all of those areas, those soft skills are valuable whichever career you go into. We were starting to see some changes uh, at a government level to recognise that uh, and to value that. And particularly, as I say, that former point about recognising that you take somebody at entry and get them up to a certain level of skills and a certain level of pay and, and moving away from the focus on, on the volume of, of lower skilled roles and, and people that we take in. Um, that's a, a work in progress. Um, and the sector as a whole needs to do much more to be able to communicate that clearly. Having that longer term labor strategy that looks at the qualifications, the training, the common um, entry-level qualifications and common standards of training that I talked about, a skills passport that we're working towards over the next 18 months, two years, will go a long way to, to deliver that because you'll have consistent levels of, of training and uh, qualifications and certification across the country on the back of that. Yeah, and I, I suppose another challenge within that uh, as well, Kate, and something, again, Nick's written about in in a lot of detail recently is you know, how we ensure greater diversity of people coming into the sector and then progressing up into management and boardroom roles. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of the, the benefits of hospitality and the thing we need to celebrate the most is that it is the ultimate meritocracy. There is nothing stopping you from going from entry level right the way through to the highest level uh, within companies or, or running your own business. Um, because we will back and train you all the way. Um, and at those entry level and the volume of, of, of applications and the volume of jobs that we've got, we should also be celebrating the fact that we have the most diverse, most inclusive workforce of any major industrial sector. We have the lowest gender pay gap. We have more women in, in those roles than we have men. We have great diversity, um, better than the representation that you get across the country as a whole in BAME. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of work being done on neurodiversity, uh, disabled inclusion in the workforce uh, and LGBTQ+. What we do need to work on is, is those senior level management roles 
um, and investing in leadership and management skills to be able to make sure that we can take the brightest and the best, which is a very diverse melting pot that comes in at, at a more entry level, make sure that they are equipped to be managers at sites and then make sure that there is a clear career path to go through higher up in the companies um, and a lot of focus needed at that level just below C-suite to make sure that we've got better representation. As I say, if you look at the C-suite reporting um, and the reports that you have to do as FTSE 100 companies, hospitality as a whole has a very good story to tell about representation at a board level. And crucially, the representation we deliver is in operational roles, not non-execs. But we do need to work harder to make sure that talent pipeline is there and coming through just below the C-suite because we, we do lose out um, and we lose many good people and we lose that diversity the further we get towards the top. So always more work to do, but I think we should celebrate the, the meritocracy that we've got going on in the sector as a whole. Well, it's nice to finish on a positive note. And for all that we've discussed, a lot of challenges facing the sector. Businesses in hospitality are nothing if not resilient, aren't they? And they've shown that through that pandemic. And I've no doubt they'll show that um, as we, we go through the autumn and the winter and the you know the, the real deep challenges that we face. Kate, thank you so much for sparing us the time uh, to come and talk to us, um, you know, and, and best of luck for the challenges that you and your organisation will face uh, in the next few months and going forward. I'm sure you'll uh, approach them, um, you know, with your usual diligence and, uh, and I wish you every success. A huge thank you to our guest, Kate Nichols, and thank you to Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com. Thanks for listening.